A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned we're trying to, I would like to get through Mark by the end of the year. Um, and I said that one week, and then this is our third week in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. One thing I like about being a pastor is I, I don't have to rush through. I can take as much time as I want uh, going through a book of the Bible. Mark 10, verse 13, page 770. When you find that, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's Word. Mark 10 and 13, and they were bringing the children to Jesus that he would touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and he said to them, Allow the children to come to me and do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, began blessing them and laying his hands on them. The title of the message this morning is Receiving the Kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and devotion. Lord, we love you. Uh, we want our lives to bring glory and honor to your name. Father, we come this morning. We bow in your presence. We surrender this time to you. Father, this little bit of time that we have left, that we have together. Lord, we, we want to meet with you. We need you to send Holy Spirit to come and take the word and make it living and active in our hearts to... Lord, just help us to receive it as we should. Lord, if there's a challenge that we need to, to receive from this, then let your word challenge us. If there is a, a rebuke that we need to receive from this, then let your word rebuke us. If there's encouragement we need to receive from this, let your word encourage us. Father, your word is meant to do a work in our lives. We know that. Father, Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us through the truth and that your word is truth. So today, whatever needs to be done to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, let your word and your spirit work together. And bring that to bear on our lives. Father, we are not gathering today to check a box. We're not gathering just to, to say, well, I went to church and I've done my duty. Lord, we love you. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have gathered here to meet with you so that you could strengthen us and challenge us and change us. And, and just do what needs to be done to make us everything that you have saved us to be. God, fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Use this time. And Lord, use this to, to help our church to be who you want us to be so that we can reach Guyman for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So, verse 13. The parents are bringing their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. This was a very common practice uh, in, in this day, something that... That they often did to respected rabbis. But the disciples saw this. They saw the children coming. And they rebuked the parents. And they tried to stop them. Now when Jesus saw. Verse 14. When Jesus saw the disciples were stopping them. He was indignant. He was much grieved. That the disciples were trying to keep the children away from him. He goes on. And he commands that they would allow the children to not come to him. Or to allow the children to come to him and not to forbid them. And then he says, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now that statement, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and be referring to children, it would have been shocking to Jesus' original hearers. And we wonder maybe, what is it about children that would justify such a, a strong and a bold and a shocking statement as that. Now, some would say it means the innocence of children. Because they're innocent, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Or the kingdom of God belongs to them. Others might say it's just the simple faith of children. They just believe 
And that's why the kingdom of God belongs to them. There are other ideas that you could read if you were to look at a commentary of what it may mean. But, but the context ultimately has to decide what Jesus means. And, and in the context, the children are seen as unimportant. In the context, the children are seen as having nothing to offer. They are seen as being the bottom rung of the spiritual ladder, of the spirit of the social ladder. Sure, if Jesus were to bless the children, it would do something for the children. But what would it do for Jesus? This is part of the reason the disciples are trying to stop it. Jesus taking time out of his busy schedule to bless the children. Again, it would bless the children. It would bless the parents. But it's not going to do anything for Jesus. It's not going to help him in any way. The children essentially have nothing to offer Jesus except him. Now, if someone had asked Jesus who the kingdom of God belonged to, they would have expected him to point to powerful people or to influential people or to wealthy people or to extremely educated people. They would have expected Jesus to point to people who have something to offer the kingdom of God. Somebody who could come to the kingdom and more they offered more than just themselves. That when they entered the kingdom, when they were a part of the kingdom, the kingdom was elevated because of their presence, because of their inclusion. And Jesus saying the kingdom of God belongs to, to children, unimportant. Overlooked members of society who have nothing to offer the kingdom other than themselves was a, an astonishing idea. And it was a radical departure from the way people thought at the time. Jesus turns the idea on its head with his teaching of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God reverses the way the world works in many ways. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. In the kingdom of God, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the kingdom of God, those who are rich will be made poor. And those who are poor will be made rich. In the kingdom of God, those who are comfortable will be afflicted. And those who are afflicted will be made comfortable. In the kingdom of God, those who are strong will be made weak. And those who are weak will be made strong. In the kingdom of God, what is esteemed among people is detestable to God. And he causes a great reversal. But he goes on with even more shocking statement. Look at verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus makes one shocking statement by the kingdom belongs to children. Now he says anyone who wants to receive the kingdom has to become like a child themselves. And in fact, if they do not enter the receive the kingdom like a child, they will not enter it at all. So so this isn't the way we should enter it or the way that we could enter it, the way we might enter it. This is the only entrance to the kingdom is receiving it as a child. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? Well, again, the context has to decide in the context, the powerless and the unimportant and the overlooked members of society with nothing to offer but themselves would receive the kingdom of God as a gift. 
They would receive it as a gift and not as a matter of entitlement, not as a matter of merit, not as a matter of right, and not as a matter of privilege. They didn't earn it. They weren't entitled to it. They weren't bartering for it. The kingdom of God was offered to them as a gift. And if it was to be received, it had to be received in this way. Jesus says we must receive the kingdom of God as a gift given or we must not or we will not enter it at all. To enter the kingdom, we have to come to Jesus with the attitude we have nothing but ourselves to offer. We must receive the kingdom as as a gift given, not as a matter of entitlement, not as a matter of merit, not as a matter of right. Not as a matter of privilege. We didn't earn it. And we will never earn it. We aren't entitled to it. And we will never be entitled to it. We aren't bartering for it. And there's nothing we could barter that would ever acquire it. We simply receive it. No one enters the kingdom any other way. So what is the kingdom? What does that refer to? While there is a lot that goes into the idea of the kingdom of God, the super condensed version of it is the place where the king rules. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. To receive the kingdom, we receive Jesus. To enter the kingdom is to enter into the salvation Jesus offers us. If we want Jesus and everything he offers, then we must receive them as gifts given. Not as a matter of entitlement, not as a matter of merit, not as a matter of right, not as a matter of privilege. There's not one thing that we receive from Jesus that we earned. We never earned it and we never will. There's not one thing we receive from Jesus we're entitled to. We're not entitled to it and we never will be. There's not one thing we receive from Jesus that we barter for, we're trading for. I'll do this for you if you do that for me. We never barter for it and we can't barter for it. No one enters the kingdom other than receiving it as a gift. No one receives Jesus other than receiving him as a gift. No one receives anything from Jesus unless they simply receive it as a gift given. No one enters any other way. Now, The reason we must receive Jesus and the kingdom and everything Jesus offers as a gift given without any sense of earning it, without any sense of entitlement, without any sense of bartering for it, is because we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of God's righteous standards. And what's happened with that is our sins are are not a, a minor thing. Our sins are not a small thing. They're more than just a, a transgression or a mistake. Sins in in many ways are treason against the king. We have told the king, you will not rule over me. We are disobedient and rebellious to the king over all kings. But not only are we disobedient and rebellious, that that sin, it does something in us. And what it does in us is it totally removes any sense of righteousness or merit we may have. If we have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard, we are, all of us, 
totally without any natural righteousness of our own. We are totally without any merit in the eyes of Jesus on our own. Our sin has taken those things away from us. And we have no right to Jesus, the kingdom, or anything Jesus offers. We have nothing to barter with. We have nothing we can say. I'll give this to you if you give that to me. We are empty of all of those things. Look at how God's word describes this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. To my way of thinking, no passage more powerfully reveals our lack of righteousness and goodness and merit apart from Jesus like this one does. God's word says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, filthy garments. The word, one of the word pictures, there are two primary word pictures associated with the the filthy garments. One of them is, it, it refers to cloth used to wrap a a putrid running sore such as you might find on a leper. Now, if you ever read stories about leprosy, you know that a part of what happened was there were sores that would come up on their body and boils that would come and then they would pop and they would begin to run and ooze all manner of nastiness. And, And it smelled terrible, but beyond the smell that my understanding is that it, it was infected. So getting that on you could infect you on its own. And they just sort of ran all the time. So what the lepers would do is they would take strips of cloth and they would bind themselves up over the sores. And that cloth would stay over the sore until it had absorbed so much that the runny stuff was gooing and running out over that. Well, once it had been that infected, once it had been that oozed with the stuff, they had to take it and burn it. It couldn't be claimed. There was just nothing alive in that day that could cleanse it enough that it could ever be used for anything again. So when it talks about like a filthy garment, that is one of the images that's being painted in this passage. Now, you and I, we can't imagine touching something like that. We just do disgusting to even contemplate. But even worse would be, can you imagine somebody, a leper, holding that and going, look at what I did. Look how awesome I am. I made this all by myself. I did this. The picture in this passage is that when we hold up our righteous deeds before the Lord, say, look how good I am. Look at what I did on my own. That's basically what we're doing. We're not doing anything any different. And and again, notice how powerful this is. Our righteous deeds. Not our not our sin. Our sin is not so filthy that it's like an uh, like a filthy garment. No, no. It's our righteous deeds. Apart from Jesus, the best we could ever hope to do is the filthy garment wrapped around a lesper's source. That is how thoroughly unclean, how thoroughly unrighteous we are apart from Jesus. And this is all of us. 
This is all of us. If we have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard, that applies to us. And that's a humbling truth to accept. And that humbling is necessary because receiving Jesus, the kingdom and everything Jesus offers requires us to have an attitude of humility and not pride. Pride will not allow us to receive the kingdom, to receive Jesus, to receive what Jesus offers as gifts. Pride demands that we have that we're entitled to it. Pride demands that we have some merit. Pride demands that we have a right to Jesus and to the kingdom and what he offers. Pride will not acknowledge our sin. Pride will not acknowledge our guilt. Pride will not acknowledge our lack of righteousness before God. Pride is one of the greatest spiritual dangers we face in America. Pride is so common in our culture, in part because it's just natural to humans. But it's excessive in our culture because of how affluent we are. And how often we've been taught that we're good enough. Pride is an overflow of basically often physical affluence and being told you're enough. You're good enough just like you are. So our all that we have, our good morals, begin to make us a little puffed up and a little proud. And when we're proud, we miss out on Jesus and we miss out on everything he offers us. Take, for example, the Laodicean church from Revelation 3. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends a series of seven letters to seven churches. And each of the churches, he he speaks to them about issues going on in their church. Now, the church at Laodicea received one of the letters and it had many problems. In fact, it had so many problems. It's one of only two churches that receives no commendation from Jesus at all. But the letters typically follow like this. There's, hey, I'm Jesus and here's what I'm like. See the good things you're doing? Keep on. Here's some things I don't like about what you're doing. Here's a promise I'll give you if you overcome. Right? But when it comes to the church at Laodicea, it's here's who I am. Instantly, I have nothing good to say about you. Nothing good to say about what you're doing and how you're living. And what's interesting, in Laodicea, the things they're rebuked for, it's not bad morals. It's not bad doctrine. The root cause of every problem they have was pride. They were proud and it caused every other problem they had. Look at what he says to them. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and have no need of anything. Do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Pride was the problem, the root behind every other problem they had. Laodicea was a wealthy city filled with wealthy citizens. And the wealth they had gave them a sense of security, sufficiency, and pride. They felt they had everything they needed. In fact, the city was so wealthy and so self-sufficient that one time 
It was destroyed by a natural disaster. And when Rome offered them what we would call today disaster relief funds to rebuild, the city said, we don't need your help. We have everything we need to rebuild our city without you. And they rebuilt it all on their own. They did not need anything from anyone. And this sense of security, sufficiency and pride in their physical life, it carried over into their spiritual life. Carried over into their relationship with Jesus. They were just as secure, just as sufficient, and just as proud in spiritual things as they were about physical things. We know them as the lukewarm church that Jesus was going to vomit out of his mouth. Why do you think they were lukewarm? Because they thought they were wealthy and had need of nothing. They were proud. Their pride caused their lukewarmness. They did not need any more from Jesus than they needed from anyone else. Jesus was just a nominal part of their life. But as we look at the rebuke, what we notice is Jesus' assessment of the church is very different than their own assessment. They felt they were wealthy and in need of nothing. But Jesus says they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus recognized their desperate spiritual need. Their desperate need for him. That's what he's trying to point out to them. He's not pointing this out to humiliate them. He's not trying to belittle them. He wants to make them aware of how desperate their situation is so they will go to him and receive what they really need. He doesn't leave them merely with this rebuke. He calls for them to come to him and receive what he has. He advises them to buy from him gold refined by the fire. So you may become rich white garments. But you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in eye salve to apply to your eyes that you may see. He counsels them. Recognize your desperate need for me and come to me and receive from me everything you need. Everything is offered to them. But they must come and receive it from Jesus. They must humble themselves to realize their condition is not what they think. It is what Jesus says. Then they must go to him and just with open hands say, please, Lord Jesus, give me what I need. Not as a matter of right, not as a matter of entitlement, not as a matter of merit, not as a matter of privilege. They didn't earn it. They weren't entitled to it. They weren't bartering for it. Just come to Jesus And receive Him and everything He offers. It was a gift and it had to be received as such. I wonder, we think along this idea of pride, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. I wonder, if Jesus were to write a letter to us today, what would He say? Would He tell us, That we saw ourselves one way while he saw us another? Would he counsel us to humble ourselves and to go to him so that we could receive everything from him? And if he did, how would we respond? What would we do? Well, we have an example I want to show you today. I want to show you an example of of someone who understood this point. And he understood that it had to be received as a gift given. 
And in this story, it contrasts somebody who's who's proud. And I want us to look at this. Turn to Luke 18, page 800, if you have a pew Bible. Luke 18 and look at verse 9. Now he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So here's the point of the story. So the proud would recognize the consequence of this attitude. right? That's, that's who he's dealing with in this story. And that's important because he's not dealing with dirty, rotten sinners. He's not dealing with... Prostitutes. He, he's dealing with people who are proud, who trust in themselves. And because they trust in themselves, they look down on others. Now look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So it's the tale of, of two men, both going to God. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. This is a story of contrast. The Pharisees were seen as the best people in the world, while tax collectors were seen as the worst people in the world. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and began praying in this regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, the Pharisee begins his prayer by praising himself. He's pretty great. He's not, he's not, like, he's not like other people. I mean, he's, he's not a swindler. He's not a crook. He's not an adulterer. And, and as you read it, you can just kind of almost see him kind of side-eye and sneering. Or even like that tax collector over there, Lord. And his praise for himself continues. Verse 12. Fast twice in a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He tithes even the smallest amount of his income. He fasts. He, he just, he's just a great guy. You can just tell by the way he talks about himself. He's, he's, just, he's not really not like other people. He's just a little bit better than other people. And as you read this prayer, you could, you could just almost hear him saying under his breath, God, you're sure lucky to have me on your team. Now, Jesus' listeners hearing this, they're, they're agreeing. He is pretty great. Surely the kingdom of God belongs to such as this. But a reversal is coming. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice the contrast in the attitudes between the two men. The Pharisee drew near, while the tax collector stood far off. The Pharisee, as was the custom of the day when they prayed, would have looked up to heaven, similar to this. While the tax collector could not bring himself to look up to heaven, he, he merely bowed his head and he beat his chest in remorse. 
The Pharisee praises himself for how good he is. And the tax collector beats his chest in remorse and begs for mercy. He is not, he's not having, he knows he doesn't have any entitlement. He knows he has no merit. He knows he has no rights and he has no privilege to the kingdom of God. He's just throwing himself before God and begging for mercy. Now look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The great reversal of the kingdom of God. The one who justified himself went away condemned. The one who came condemned went away justified. The one who exalted himself would someday be humbled. And the one who humbled himself would someday be exalted. Can't you see how easily the attitude of the Pharisee could creep into our lives? Isn't it easy to compare ourselves to others and assume we're better than they are? Isn't it easy to see our good deeds and assume that they give us some sort of a merit before Jesus? Isn't it easy to look at our good morals and assume they give us some sort of evidence of our personal goodness? Now, the problem with these things isn't so much the assessment. I mean, it is entirely possible we might be better than others for one reason or another. And maybe we do have good morals. And maybe we have good deeds. I wouldn't deny that we had those things. The problem is the conclusion based off the assessment. Conclusions are faulty. We don't get Jesus in the kingdom of God because we're better than someone else. We don't get Jesus in the kingdom of God because of our good deeds. We don't get Jesus in the kingdom of God because of our morality. We only get Jesus and the kingdom of God when we receive it as a gift given. Without any sense, we've earned it. Without any sense, we're entitled to it. Without any sense, we're trading. And I'll do this for you, Jesus, if you do this for me. We're just receiving the gift Jesus is offering us. And this is the key takeaway. Jesus, the kingdom, everything else Jesus offered must be received as a gift given. Not as a matter of entitlement, merit, right, or privilege. And Jesus says that if we don't receive it that way, we do not receive it at all. To receive Jesus, the kingdom of God, and everything Jesus offers, we must go to Jesus like the tax collector. We go without offering any excuses for why we've fallen short. We, we don't try to explain why it's not our fault, our, our parents didn't raise us right, why these things were stressful. We, we don't make any excuses. We don't go to Jesus trying to barter with him. Telling him, if you'll, if you'll do me a solid here, I'll, I'll give this amount. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll try to do enough to earn what you're doing for me. We don't go to Jesus explaining why we're entitled. 
We don't go to Him and say, I thank you, Jesus, I'm not like other people. I'm thankful I'm not a swindler or an attack or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. We don't go explaining our merit. We go empty handed with nothing but ourselves to offer King Jesus. And when we humble ourselves and go to Jesus in this way, we receive Jesus, we receive the kingdom, and we receive everything Jesus has to offer us. But we only receive it if we come in that way. But this is a a, a key aspect of it. Part of the way we come to Jesus is through repentance and through faith. Repentance, change of mind about God and sin resulting in change of life. For many people, the first thing they have to change their mind about is this. There are many, many who would profess to be Christians. And yet they would reject this idea. That they have no merit. They have no entitlement. They have no right to the kingdom. They would, they would like the tax collector here, the Pharisee here, explain all of their good deeds and, and gush about what they've done and how they've earned it. And the first repentance they have to do is repent of their self-sufficiency, repent of their self-righteousness, repent of their self-idolatry. Change the way they think about it because God is right and we are not. But as we repent of that mindset, we also have to to believe. And believing in Jesus is, is not a broad thing. It is a very narrow and a very specific thing. It's not believing there's a God out there somewhere. That's not faith. That's not saving faith. It's not even enough to believe that there was a guy named Jesus who lived. Saving faith is very narrow, very specific. It is in Jesus, his life, his death and his resurrection. Faith in Jesus is believing what he did on the cross is the only reason we're able to enter the kingdom of God. His death is our only reason. Merit. It is our only entitlement. It is our only right to the kingdom is what Jesus has done. And we do not truly believe in Jesus until we believe that. If we are in this moment holding on to some sort of entitlement we have on our own, some sort of merit we have on our own, some sort of right we have on our own, make no mistake, we are outside the kingdom. Until we can humble ourselves and believe solely on Jesus and Jesus alone, we are not saved. There is no part of our salvation that is based upon us. The only thing we contribute is the sin which makes it necessary. And then we believe wholly on the Christ who died for us. And that faith in the death, burial and the resurrection of Jesus is our only merit. It is our only entitlement. It is our only right. It is the only reason we can claim to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is. It's the only 
way to enter. And if we will not enter in this way, we do not enter. Faith in Jesus is coming to Jesus like the tax collector, empty-handed and pleading for mercy. Just mercy, Lord. Faith in Jesus requires us to let go of our pride, our self-righteousness, and our self-sufficiency. We cannot cling to any of those things and cling to Jesus at the same time. We must let go of one to take hold of the other. Let's stand with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. Just a minute, we're going to pray. Have time to respond. I want to take a minute to let us just to feel the weight of this. To feel the weight that Jesus and the kingdom and everything else is only received as a gift. Not as a matter of entitlement, right, merit, or privilege. Resist the urge to push back against that. Because make no mistake, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to push back on this idea. Start trying to remind you of your merit, of your right, of the reason you're worthy of it. But understand that voice, that feeling, that is not from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the enemy of your soul trying to keep you from the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, Jesus is inviting all to come to him, to receive him, to receive his kingdom, to receive everything else he offers. But we must receive it through repentance and faith. These are individual responses that each of us must make for ourselves. You must be the one to repent. You must be the one to believe. No one can do it for you. This morning, if there is a need to repent of self-righteousness, to repent of self-sufficiency, to repent of the idea that we have some merit before Jesus, take this opportunity to repent of that and renounce it and place your faith wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on your behalf. I'll pray and the altars will be open if you need to come. Holy Father, we come today. Thank you for your word, the guidance we receive in it. Thank you for Jesus, who through his death and his resurrection has made it possible to take away our sin and our shame, take away our unrighteousness, enable us to receive the kingdom. Father, pride is an issue we we all deal with. And Lord, it threatens to destroy our souls if we're not careful. Father, this morning, let us humble ourselves and to come to you and receive Jesus, to receive the kingdom, receive everything Jesus offers as the gift that we haven't earned, a gift that we have no merit for, a gift we have no right to. Father, for many, the relationship with with you is strained. It's difficult. 
It's not the joy and the peace that your word speaks of. Father, help them examine their hearts today and to see if perhaps the reason for that is because they're clinging to their own self, their righteous, their merit, what they can do. It's never going to leave us with peace and joy because we're going to fall short. And then we're going to wonder, "Uh uh-oh, is that enough? Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Make us realize the answer to that is always no. No, we're not enough. No, we haven't done enough. No, we never will. But Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. And Jesus can give us it all. Let us come this morning in faith. The Lord Jesus Christ. Clinging to Him. Crying out mercy. Be merciful, Lord. To us who are sinners. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.